0: Good morning. morning. Will you please stand as you're able for the reading of God's Word? word. Our scripture this morning is taken from Nehemiah, chapter 8, verses 1 through 12. 12. Um, If you need it in the Pew Bibles, it's on page 403. Um, I'm sure a lot of people will follow on their phone, but it's available to you in the Pew Bible as well, page 403. in the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand. And all the ears of the people were attentive to the book of the law. And Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform that they had made for the purpose. And beside him stood Mattithiah, Shema, Aneah, Uriah, Hilkiah, and Maaseiah on his right hand, and Pedeah, Mishael, Malkaijah, Hashum, Hashbadenah, Zechariah, and Meshulam on his left hand. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people, and as he opened it, all the people stood. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Also, Yeshua, Bani, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akub, Sha'abatai, Hodiah, Maaseiah, Kelita, Azariah, Josabad, Hanan, Peleah, the Levites, helped the people to understand the law, while the people remained in their places. They They read from the book, from the law of God clearly, clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. reading. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, governor, and Ezra, the the priest and and scribe, And the Levites who taught the people said to all the people, this day is holy to the Lord your God, do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, go your way, eat the fat and drink sweet wine and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready. For this day is holy to our Lord and do not be grieved for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be quiet, for this day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink and to send portions and to make great rejoicing, because they had understood the words that were declared to them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
1: Thank you, Amy. I told, uh, told Ivan to make sure he told Amy to practice before she got up there because there's so many names there. If you're looking for, if you're looking for a name for your kid, I mean, I would go to Nehemiah 8 because there's just a lot of, good, <laughs> lot of good names there. So good morning, everybody. It's good to uh, see you this morning. I got the stool out, doing a little family chat today. I saw one of our kids uh, this week and he said, a family chat, yes. So I don't know if all of you feel that same way, but uh, at least our kids like the family chat. So it's good to be with you all uh, this morning. And I wanted to just, before I got into our uh, sermon today, just wanted to touch base on a few things. And the first is it's, it's really great to be back and to be with you all. And uh, there's so many uh, new faces that I have, people I have not met. We were here, as I mentioned last week or two weeks ago, we've been here over the summer uh, you know, up in the balcony and and present. And there's so many people as I've looked down that I'm like, I don't know that person or that person or that person. So if I haven't met you, I look forward to meeting you. And there's so many people that I haven't talked to for the past uh, summer or before because maybe you weren't here because of COVID. So I look forward to connecting uh, with all of you and reconnecting with you. So anyway, it's great to be back and uh, to be worshiping with you and reconnecting with you all. And I look forward uh, to meeting you if you're new. Second, a uh, thing is uh, we have a worship pastor candidate coming in uh, this week. Many of you might know Greg Molina. Greg grew up here at Calvary, was in our youth group, uh, went off to Grove City College, uh, and then took a job as a uh, director of worship at a church out in Ohio. And so he's been there uh, for the past number of years. And as our uh, position has opened up here, He's reached out and has applied, and uh, we uh, look forward to inviting him in this coming week. And so he'll be leading worship for us next Sunday, and then throughout this week, he's going to be meeting with our elders and our worship team and our staff and just kind of getting to know the church. We're going to get to know him a bit more and hear from him. So I would really appreciate, uh, we would all appreciate your prayers for us uh, as the leadership, uh, for me as I try to discern where the Lord's guiding us and leading us and And uh, whether uh, Greg is the right person uh, for this position and as the Lord is uh, guiding and leading Greg as well to discern uh, his own calling and whether it's here at Calvary. So just be praying for us this week. If you are part of our worship uh, teams or worship ministries, you would have gotten an email or should have gotten an email at the end of last week inviting you uh, to a a special meeting on Saturday uh, to connect with Greg uh, and his family. And so if you didn't get that email, you could just talk to myself or Pastor Johnny uh, and uh, we can help you get uh, connected uh, to that. But anyway, be praying for us uh, this coming week. All right. The third thing is a little bit of uh, an update on my sabbatical. And many of you have asked, hey, how was your sabbatical? How was your time away? And uh, was it good? And was it refreshing? And it's, it's been a little bit of a challenge to figure out how to convey kind of like in kind of a passing moment, like how my sabbatical was. Because uh, on one hand, it was very rich. Very meaningful, and the Lord did a lot of kind of unearthing in my life uh, over this past three months. But it also has been a bit of a tumultuous time for me. And so to kind of give it just a little bit of a just a little bit of a word, I'll say that the first month of my sabbatical uh, was spent in significant anxiety attacks. And not anxiety related to pastoring here at Calvary. It wasn't like you guys worked me to the bone, and by the end of you know <laughs> the end of my time, I was just you know a wreck. Not that there there was just a number of things from my own kind of family context, extended family context, and then my life, like all the way back down, probably to things that I can't even remember that kind of came together and peaked right as I was heading into sabbatical. And uh, that first month was pretty tumultuous some of you i talked to occasionally others of you i I haven't this would be new for you and uh so the next two months the lord i it was kind of like what is going on uh in my life and uh so the next two months was a lot of introspection a lot of prayer uh some counseling talking to friends uh trying to figure out like what is the lord looking to show me in the midst of all of these anxiety attacks that i've been having and so I feel like the Lord has begun to, to crack open some things, to break open some things in my life that have been very rich and very life-giving for me to experience and to explore. Uh, and so I know Pastor Todd, he would be gone sometimes for the summer. He'd come back and he'd, he'd preach a sermon, what, what I learned on summer vacation. And I feel like I've got so much, I can't just preach it in a sermon. So I was sharing some of what I feel like the Lord has taught me Uh, with the staff and uh, the week I came back and then I shared it as well with the elders at the first elder meeting and both the staff and the elders say you really you need to figure out how to share some of this with the congregation and uh, so I, I was trying to think about how best to communicate some of what I feel like the Lord has been teaching me and so talking with the staff and then talking with Johnny and Caroline we decided to put together a podcast so you know we have a this is Calvary podcast and maybe some of you are regular listeners to the podcast. Uh, but we put together a four-part series podcast uh, that's kind of like what I learned this summer, you know, by Pastor Gerald. And it's all about my experience uh, with the anxiety for the first month, the anxiety attacks, and the post-anxiety uh, post, uh, uh, attacks. And I will say that I don't feel like I have you know, kind of sail it out of the choppy waters and I'm like, it's all clear sailing ahead and I've got it all figured out. So don't go to that podcast thinking you're going to just figure out all the answers to everything if you're struggling with anxiety. But I do feel like the Lord has taught me some important things over the summer. And so listen to that podcast if you're interested. If you're not interested, that's fine. I'll never know that you didn't listen to the podcast, you know, but if you are interested, you can listen to that podcast And even if you don't listen to the podcast, you can know that over the next however many years of my life, that the things that the Lord has been teaching me this past summer are going to be making regular appearances uh, in my sermons. And so one of the things that's going to make an appearance today uh, in the sermon that I felt like the Lord really has pressed upon me uh, over the summer is the importance of living with joy and joy in the Lord. And that, I would think, was something that I had learned already, and I guess I had learned it in some ways, but then when you get there, you realize that you hadn't learned it, you know, and so there's a depth of, of joy that is found in Christ that I would commend to us today, and so I was trying to think, like, how do I both stay faithful to the sermon series, but then also... Uh, bring you in on a bit of what I feel like the Lord's been teaching me. So you've heard of throwback Thursdays. This is like step back Sunday. We're stepping back in our sermon series all the way to the book of Nehemiah, which has been read for us. So this is going back in our sermon series. So it's still part of the sermon series sort of, but this is a particular passage that I feel like the Lord's really just been kind of bringing to mind and pressing in upon me over the summer and uh, this idea of joy. So we're going to jump into our sermon series back, and then we're going to uh, bring it forward in the weeks to come. But I want us to focus on joy. And then, of course, we'll be taking communion at the end of the sermon, uh, which uh, Ivan announced for us. So if you're watching on the live stream and maybe you came late and missed that, I encourage you to get your elements uh, ready uh, for the sermon, uh, for the uh, communion at the end of the sermon series. So let me pray for us, and then we're going to jump into our sermon this morning. Father, thank you for uh, your grace and your kindness in our lives. We thank you that the blood of Jesus washes away all of our sin and uh, that there's nothing in us that we have to reach for or accomplish or do in our own strength to secure that freedom and that gift, but is given to us freely and graciously. And so we thank you for that. I pray, God, this morning that as we look at and reflect upon the redemption that you have given us, that it would bring to our hearts true, deep Christian joy, and that we would, out of the overflow of that joy, uh, be able to live lives of gratitude and love and obedience. So, God, bless us this morning, I pray. Don't just teach us things or information. I pray that you would teach us of yourself that we would experience you and who you are. And we pray this in your son's name. Amen. All right. So if you got your Bible, you can turn back to Nehemiah chapter 8. You'll notice, uh, as Amy mentioned, we didn't have the scripture on the screens uh, this morning. We're kind of doing that through the, uh, the pandemic time. But as I was coming every Sunday, and I'm sitting up in the balcony, I realized that there was quite a few Sundays that I did not bring my Bible, So I thought, hmm, that's interesting. I used to bring my Bible all the time. And then I would look down at, at you all, and there were like, very few of you had your Bibles. Some of you would be on your phones. But when you get to that place, you know, like when you go from Nehemiah chapter eight in the middle, and then there'd be that sound of everyone flipping their pages. Like that sound has gone away from our church. So you don't have to bring a paper Bible. Uh, But do start bringing your Bibles back to church. And uh, it's easier to follow along in a sermon if you can look down in the text and see. So I'll be saying, do you see that in verse 3? Do you see that in verse 5? And you'll be like, no, I don't see it because I don't have my Bible. Well, get your Bible. Okay, so here we are in Nehemiah chapter 8. And if you have been attending Calvary over the past couple of years, you know that we're in the middle of a sermon series since January of 2020, in fact. All things new the story of the Bible and the healing of the world. And throughout the series, we have been tracing along week after week, this single overarching story of the Bible, how all the stories of the Bible come together to make a continuous single story, God's redemption and his healing of the world through his son, Jesus Christ. And so last week, Pastor Eric brought us up to Acts chapter 17 in the New Testament, Paul at Athens teaching proclaiming the gospel to the philosophers there in Athens. But this week, as I said, we're going back about 500 years in our story to the book of Nehemiah. And the law of God is going to factor significantly into our text this morning and the point that I think the Lord would have for us. So I want to just take a moment to re orient us back to the function of the law in the life of God's people. So this will be a recap for many of us if we've been around church for a while or have been paying attention to the sermon series. If you're new to Calvary or new to Christianity or still exploring Christianity, you may not know much about the law of God. So let me just walk us through this real quick to just kind of help orient us to how the law functions in the life of God's people. God gave the law initially, and we find it in the book of Exodus, but he gave the law initially when he constituted the nation of Israel as a nation. And the law was the charter, kind of the blueprint, the legal codes, for how the people of God were to function in their relationship with God and in their relationship with each other and the relationship with the world around them. So the law was fundamental to the identity of the nation of Israel as the people of God. And the law contained both promises and warnings. So promises of blessing if the people adhered to and followed and lived in accordance with the law, but then warnings of punishment if they disobeyed disobeyed and neglected the law. And the great and final punishment of the law for continued disobedience would be exile, would be driven out from the land into the captivity of their enemies. Well, if you know the story of Israel over the course of the next thousand years, So from the time that the law was given until the time of captivity, rests somewhere roughly around a thousand years. And over this period of a thousand years, the people neglected regularly the law of God. And God was long-suffering and patient throughout this time. And over and over again, he pleaded with the people and he sent prophets and he sent messengers, he even raised up kings who were supposed to bring the people back to himself and to call the people away from their folly and disobedience. This is so much the story of the Old Testament from the time that the law is given all the way until the final blow of discipline falls and they are driven away into exile. Some people think that the God of the Old Testament is this short-fused, short-tempered, heavy-handed, you know, angry God. But when you zoom back over a thousand years and you look at God's parenting of his people, you might almost mistake him for a permissive parent. I mean, a thousand years he pleaded with his people before the final hammer of the law fell. But finally, it got so bad for so long that this final punishment of exile came upon the people and they are taken away to the foreign lands. But even there, in the midst of their exile, because of their disobedience, God is still gracious and compassionate to them. After a thousand years of sin and rebellion, their time of exile would only be 70 years. So they have a 70-year time out in exile. And that brings us then to the book of Nehemiah. So Nehemiah was the governor of Jerusalem who was appointed by God as the leader of Israel to bring the people back to their homeland after their 70 years of exile. And so under Nehemiah's leadership, and this is pretty much the first eight chapters of the book of Nehemiah, we see Nehemiah helping the people rebuild the infrastructure of the city, rebuilding the walls, rebuilding uh, the city itself, resettling the land, but not only does Nehemiah focus on rebuilding the city, he also focuses on renewing the covenant. Nehemiah, along with Ezra the priest, who we read about already here in our text, works to turn the hearts of God back to God and towards his law. And that brings us to Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 1. So, what we have in Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 1 is the people of God have come back from captivity. And they're being reintroduced to the law that they have neglected for a thousand years. They've got a reboot, a restart, right? And here they are, they're restarting. And as they engage with the law, we're going to see that Ezra the priest points them what is to me in a surprising direction, an unexpected direction about how they are to engage with the law and with God. All right, so in verse 8 or chapter 8, verse 1, getting into our text now. We see that all the people have gathered in Jerusalem, right? So they have come back to the land. They've, some have settled in Jerusalem proper, some are in the surrounding regions, but they've all come together in Jerusalem. And verse five tells us that they have built a raised wooden platform for Ezra the priest to stand upon and to teach the law to all the people. And it makes good sense that this is happening, right? Because they've been in exile for 70 years because they've neglected the book of the law. And so all the people want to know, how do we not have that happen again? Tell us about this law that we're supposed to be following. How do we figure out how to live our lives in accordance with God so that we don't end up in exile again? And keep in mind, it's not like everyone has a copy of the law. It's not like how all of us have a copy like the family Bible sitting on our shelves. Most of us have three or four or five or six copies of the family Bible in our house. And then we got it on our phone. But back in those days, right, the laws were written on scrolls, You know, it could all right, like you didn't have like the law in your house, right? So for many of them, they have not read the law. And they've been in exile in foreign lands for the past 70 years. Many of them, perhaps most of them, haven't even heard the law. They've heard about the law, they know there is a law, and they know that there's a bunch of precepts and something about God's story and history, and but they don't really know the law. So they're asking Ezra, the priest, to come and to teach the law to them so that they know how they can live. So that they don't end up in exile again. And so Ezra comes and he begins to read from the law of Moses. And the law of Moses is the first five books of the Bible. We don't know where he started, right? But he's reading from the law of Moses. And he goes on reading from morning until midday. Recounting Israel's history and recounting all the precepts of the Lord. From morning until midday. I mean, can you imagine... Kids, you think I preach long sermons. I mean, just be glad you do not have Ezra for your pastor. I mean, you'd get here in the morning, you'd be here all day. All right, morning till midday. But verse 3 tells us that the ears of all the people were attentive. They were really listening in, right? No one was bored. They were paying attention to what Ezra was saying. And verses 7 and 8 tell us that as Ezra is teaching from his raised platform, must have taken some breaks periodically because all of his fellow Levites who also understood the law, they were working their way throughout the crowd, explaining and giving instruction and answering questions and interpreting the law so that the people understood it. But then we get to first verse 9, and here's where I really want us to focus our attention. Because as the law is being read to the people and they're beginning to understand it, the people begin to weep. As the people are renewing their commitment to obedience, as they come to understand how they have missed the mark, what is being asked of them going forward, they're cut to the quick. They begin to weep. And the weight of conviction begins to fall heavy upon them. And in one sense, that's good. It's right and proper that when we see the gap between who we are and who we should be, that we begin to feel the weight of conviction, the proper response of an awareness of our sins is grief and sorrow. But then look at the pastoral counsel that Ezra gives to the people. Look in verse 9. People are weeping. and He says to them, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. Verse 10, Go your way, eat the fat and drink sweet wine, and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready, for this day is holy to our Lord. And do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. The joy of the Lord is your strength. The strength for what? The strength to obey the law. The strength for obedience. And that catches me off guard because it's not what I would expect Ezra to say. Because you, do you know? What I do when I become aware of my sin, maybe it's the same thing that you do. First, I feel guilty. That's the first thing I do. Then, having felt guilty, I dig deeper and I try harder. I let the weight of my sin settle down upon me and with a renewed sense of conviction and earnestness, I strive forward towards obedience. Conviction. That's my response when I become aware of my sin. But here, Ezra calls for joy. As the weight of Israel's sins press in upon them and they gather themselves for a fresh run at obedience, Ezra calls the people Joy, not to a renewed sense of earnest conviction, but to joy. Over the summer, I was, got together with a couple friends and we were just reflect, we all have younger-ish kids, and uh, we were reflecting on the difficulties of parenting, particularly in a place like Oak Park, but just in the culture at large, trying to raise your kids with Christian conviction in the face of a culture that is constantly pressing in against that. And I think back to the times when I, to the time when I was in high school. And maybe you can think back, you know, really if you're my age or older, you can think back to the time when you were in high school. And our culture as a whole had a shared sense of morality and conviction with Christian morality and conviction. It doesn't mean that our culture always followed it, but it does mean that there was a shared sort of continuity between the Christian vision of the life and the cultural vision of life. And so a lot of my friends didn't live with Christian conviction, but they did recognize that me living with Christian conviction was begrudgingly probably a good adult sort of thing to do. But that's not how it is anymore. And kids, if you're in high school, you know that's not how it is anymore. Because to live with Christian conviction now in our culture isn't a begrudgingly acknowledged good thing to do by your friends. You're a hater. And it puts you in a very difficult spot to live with Christian conviction. You're not just a goody two-shoes. You're, you're an oppressive force in society. So we were talking about this, my friends and I, and we were reflecting on uh, just the difficulty and the challenge that that is for our kids. And one of my friends was saying, he says, I think part of the problem is that we as parents don't live with conviction. We just go with the flow, right? We just, ch- we just take the easy way so often. And our kids see that. And why would our kids live with conviction that they don't see us living with conviction? I think that that's right. And four months ago, before my sabbatical, I would have agreed with that without reservation. But over the past three months, as I've been processing what it means to follow Christ, I've come to see that while I've had lots of conviction in my life, I've lived with conviction, I'm not certain that the weight of all my conviction has been life-giving for my children. Do you know what our children need to see in us as they press into the hard spaces of obedience? They need to see joy. They need to see our joy in the Lord. The joy of the Lord Is our strength. If all we pass on to our kids is our Christian convictions, right and true that they are and necessary, but fail to pass on our Christian joy, then the faith of our kids will never survive the pressures of our culture. And Ezra knew this with the Israelites. The Israelites had not failed to keep the law because they had lacked the strength that comes from conviction. They had failed to keep the law because they lacked the strength that comes from joy. Or we could say it like this. The reason they had no conviction to keep the law is because they had no joy. Over their long history of apostasy, they had stopped feasting and rejoicing in God the God who had redeemed them, they had lost sight of God's redemption. And once they stopped rejoicing in God's redemption, once they stopped living with a felt awareness of how very good it was to be loved by a God who was so gracious and compassionate and full of abounding love, the precepts of the law became just that, precepts. Just burdens to bear, inconvenient rules to follow. And eventually when it became costly obedience, the laws were just disregarded. And Ezra knew that the joy of the Lord is the strength and that without the joy of the Lord and the strength that comes from joy, the law could not and would not be kept. So here at this moment of renewing the covenant with the people, he calls the people to joy, to feasting even, to celebration, of God's redemption in their lives. So, how is your joy in the Lord this morning? What fuels your obedience? Is it conviction or is it joy? Or maybe you're like, it's neither, which is a, perhaps another sermon for a different time. But what fuels your obedience, conviction or joy? Joy and conviction, of course, are not mutually exclusive. Conviction is vital to the Christian life. I think my friend was right in what he said. But listen, conviction, catch this, conviction is self-wrought. You don't even need the Holy Spirit to have convictions. The Pharisees had convictions. The terrorists who blew up the trade center have convictions. Joy is deeper than conviction. It's the foundation and power that properly animates conviction. Because joy is a celebration of the redeeming grace and presence of God. Which is the very thing that gives power for obedience. Joy is what makes conviction life-giving rather than self-righteous and bludgeoning to have convictions without joy. That just makes you a Pharisee and a legalist. And if you know Israel's history, that's basically what happened. So up until Nehemiah chapter 8, essentially up until exile, they lived as libertines. They had no convictions, right? Then, and they came back from exile. They're like, we got to get this law thing straightened out. And Ezra's like, we got to start with joy. And they're like, no, 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 we're going to conviction, right? So then you read Nehemiah on to the New Testament, and by the time you get to Jesus and the Apostle Paul and the disciples, the nation of Israel is full of conviction, but they're not full of joy. And it's no better, right? To have conviction without joy, it doesn't bring life. Evangelicalism has long been. The conservative wing of North American Christianity. When you think about Christianity in North America, we're essentially a a Protestant country. And in that broad sweep of Protestantism in North America, evangelicals are the conservative wing, the conservative party of kind of broader North American Christianity. And those of us who are Christian conservatives rightly believe in sin and judgment. We rightly have convictions about morality. And all that's well and good because the Bible affirms all of that. But sin and judgment and morality and conviction are not the gospel. It's not the gospel. Deeper still, lying at the very heart of all things, at the foundation of everything that exists, is living, eternal, divine joy. And God has so graciously invited us to participate in this joy. Not because we've been good, not because we've kept his rules, not because we try really hard or because we've demonstrated sacrificial obedience, not because we have convictions, but because God loves us. As a father loves his children, he has extended his love to us in the person of Jesus Christ, and he has filled us with his own joy through the gift of the Holy Spirit. Joy doesn't wait for us on the far side of conviction. Joy precedes conviction and empowers it to know and experience the free and unmerited love of God found in the face of Jesus Christ. This is to know joy itself. Here I'm not talking about some kind of happy, slappy emotionalism. Joy is deeper than surface happiness and zip right? All of us have a different emotional spectrum, right? So this isn't just for like all the happy extroverted people, right? That I'm like, joy's for all of us, even if we're pretty even-tempered, right? Because true Christian joy isn't emotionalism. It's a deep gut-level reservoir of contentment and peace that freely bubbles up to the surface of our lives as patience, and kindness, and love. And true Christian joy, it's Quick to smile, quick to laugh, quick to be hopeful, quick to think of the well-being of the other. Christian joy loves to celebrate and to feast, and it loves to invite others to the feast. And joy isn't afraid to cry. Joy sees all the sufferings and the pain in the world and doesn't look away. Instead, it reaches down into the even deeper, all-sufficient grace of Christ. And then it covers the pain that it sees in the world with gentleness and compassion and tenderness. Joy is deep in the bones, spiritual happiness that both loves the world and transcends the world at the same time. And if we skip past joy and go straight to sin and judgment and morality and conviction, we're going to miss the heart of God that is the power of the gospel. So weep for our sin, yes, but then let your weeping for sin become rejoicing for the love that you have in Jesus. But I know that many of us do not know how to easily find our way to joy. That's been a lot of my story the past three months, struggling to find my way to joy. So maybe you hear a sermon like this and it doesn't bring you joy. Instead, it just brings you conviction about how you don't live with joy. Right? I mean, that could be, right? You're the parent and you're like, oh, my kids need joy. I stink. You know, and I was... Preparing this sermon and writing it then I was kind of preaching it to myself, you know, And as I was preaching to myself, I found that I was preaching it to myself with conviction and intensity. You need to have joy. What kind of Christian are you dependent on conviction when you should be depending on joy? And I've come to see that I'm so prone to fuel my life with conviction rather than joy that when I find that I'm not living with joy, I just reflexively reach for more conviction. And then when I see that I'm reaching for conviction instead of joy, I get more convicted. So then I reach for more conviction and just on and on and on and down it goes. So brother and sister, if you reflexively go to conviction, when you hear about how you should be going to joy, you can just come stand in line next to me. And then we'll just stumble down the road together trying to find joy. I believe we'll get there. Christ will lead us there. But how do we find joy? I think there's a whole sermon series here. I don't feel like I'm quite ready to preach it because I'm still trying to like get my head around it, myself, my heart around it. But I feel like I should say something. Otherwise, you're all just going to leave with conviction about how you don't have joy, right? And that's not, that's not, that's not the point of the sermon. All right, so let me just say four things about finding joy as we move towards communion. First... It's that joy is not a self-wrought work. It's a gift of grace. And it's helpful to remember that. We can't just dredge it up from our own hearts by our own efforts. C.S. Lewis talks about the difference between pleasure and joy. And he says, pleasure is within our grasp. And it has to do more like with bodily things, like sex and clothes and food and cars. He says, joy is deeper than pleasure. It's a gift of grace. It's not a gift of nature. It's a gift of grace. And in order to access joy, you need God. We just need God to access joy. It's not something that we can just dredge up on our own. The book of Ecclesiastes is, in many ways, a whole book about the search for joy. And there's a couple of times in the book of Ecclesiastes where the teacher says where joy is found. And and when he says where joy is found, he says it's a gift from God. Joy is always seen in scripture as a gift from God. So if joy comes hard for you, just be easy on yourself. Don't beat yourself up for not living with joy. Because life can be hard and it can be hard to find joy. And it's okay. It's okay. God loves you before you find joy. He loves your little joyless self. And thank God that he does, right? You don't have to have joy to be loved by God. Because you know what precedes joy? The love of God precedes joy. He loves us whether we have joy or not. So just be at peace. Don't be at conviction. If you can't find your way to joy this morning, just be at peace. It's okay. It's okay that you can't find your way to joy. Second, joy finds God both beyond the world and within the world. You know how I like my church fathers? And so one of my favorite church fathers is St. Augustine, he's a fifth century bishop, North African bishop. I've read a lot of Augustine over the years, and he's been a big influence on my life. And one of the things that Augustine taught about the relationship between God's glory or joy, we could say, and the world and creation, he says, God's glory is, it's, it's like the fount of light, and uh, creation is like a mirror that reflects God's glory. So the light of God shines down, the glory of God shines down on creation. It hits creation, and, and like a mirror, it's reflected back, and it hits us, it hits our eyes. And he says, when we see the beauty of creation, what we're seeing actually is the glory of God reflecting off of creation. And so he points out, though, that the danger comes when we begin to see creation itself as the glory of God rather than reflecting the glory of God. So Augustine, one of his lines that I remember that uh, has always stuck with me from the book of, his book of Confessions, is he says, Uh, Praying to God, he says, it was the lovely things that kept me far from you. So I would try to find joy in the things of this world. So what Augustine's sort of spirituality was, is what you need to do is when you see the light of God's glory reflecting off creation, so you don't confuse God's glory with creation, the thing you do is you turn and look away from creation. And you look towards the source of light. Now that has always made a lot of sense to me. But what I've seen, particularly this summer, but even leading up to this summer, is what that leads to, if we're not careful, this turning our back on creation. It leads to some judgmentalism. It leads to some pharisaicalism. Augustine was so worried about becoming enticed by the lovely things that he rejected, he stiff-armed all the gifts that God had given in creation. And it, it can, in its own way, become kind of joyless to always be turning your back on creation, to always be looking away from the good things that God has given you. So then I was reading St. Maximus, who is a sixth century monk. And St. Maximus, he's got a little bit of a different way of putting together creation and the glory of God. He doesn't say that creation is like a mirror that reflects the glory of God. He says creation is like a lamp that shines out the glory of God. And rather than the light of God coming down and bouncing off of creation and hitting our eyes so that we have to turn our back on creation to see God. He says you find God by going deeper into the good world that he has made. Just like you find the source of the light of the lamp is inside the lamp. So St. Maximus talked about the importance of living beyond our senses. That we don't just stop on the surface of things. Because the surface of things, that's where pleasure is found. But, But the true joy is found deep within the good things that God has made. And so we find God, we find joy, what I would say, not by turning our back on the world. Not by turning our back on creation. That actually, in the end, can lead to a rather joyless and pharisaical kind of existence. But we find God, we find joy by going deeper into the gifts that he has given. Not stopping on the surface of things, but going deeper in to the glory of God contained within. And I think that's an important word for those of us that are theological conservatives. Because the Augustinian move to turn our backs on the good things of creation, that's a conservative move. Theological conservatives do that move. And I think that what we need to do as theological conservatives, sometimes we need to turn our back on the things that God has made. But often what we need to do is to see God within the things that he has made. The glory of God within the good things that he has made. Third thing, finding joy. I would say, is there no silver bullets? Joy is just found in finding Jesus. There's no trick to finding joy. Finding joy is nothing more than just finding Jesus. Perhaps you've heard of this statement, there's a simplicity on the far side of complexity. Some of you might have heard that, some maybe not. Right? But here's an example of it. You know, when you talk to the, the newly married couple, they've been married for six months and they're just loving life. And you're like, oh, how's marriage going? They're like, it's so easy. We're All you need to do is just love each other. You know? Right? And then you talk to them like year 5, 6, 10, 15, and they're like, oh, man, this love thing. Like, it's hard, right? But then when you talk to them at year 25, year 50, and you meet them sitting in a park just holding hands quietly, and you're like, what's the secret to marriage? And they're like, you just got to love each other. Because that's the simplicity on the far side of complexity. It's actually the same answer. They were right when they were newly married. They just didn't realize how right they were and how complex it is to get there. That's how it is with joy. What's finding joy but finding Jesus? And when you're a brand new Christian, if you've been saved as an adult, you know this, like you find Jesus and you're like, you're just filled with joy. And you ask the new Christian, like, how do you find joy? It's like, it's just finding Jesus. It's like so simple. And then you're a Christian, you're 5, 10, 15, 20. And it gets more complex And you realize how difficult it is. But you come out the other side of that. And it doesn't have to be 20 years. But you come out the other side of the complexity. And you realize you were right. It's just finding Jesus. That's all it is. It's just coming back in touch with the one who has saved you. Here's the last thing I would say. Maybe this is kind of at the foundation of finding joy. And I feel like what the Lord has been teaching me this summer. You find joy when you come to experience the joy that Jesus has in you. When you see and experience, not just intellectually, but experience that you are the source of Jesus's joy, that's where you'll find your own joy. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2 talks about how Christ, he, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. what was the joy set before him? You and I were the joy set before him. That was the prize that he had come to claim. And he endured the pain of the cross for the joy that comes from what he has, his love for us. To experience the love that God has for us is more foundational and more important than loving God in return. 1 John 4, 19, this is love. Not that we love God, but that he first loved us. That's the foundation of all joy. With our fellow man, Jesus taught, to give is better than to receive. In our relationships with each other, it's better to give than to receive. But with God, it's not the same way. To receive is better than to give. Because we can only give to each other if we've received from God. And so many of us, when we approach our relationship with God, particularly as we've kind of moved out of the new conversion phase and the joy of Jesus and is kind of realizing the complexity of obedience, we start moving towards giving to God as the better thing. And What that leads to is conviction and self-wrought earnestness. And if we keep going down that road, it leads to pharisaicalism and legalism. We need to begin with receiving. That's where joy is found. To just be loved by God. What would we be as a church if we basked in the love that God has for us? That we didn't get too focused on running forward to loving others and loving God, that we skipped past receiving the love that God has for us. The loving others and loving God just happens naturally. It just flows out of receiving the love that God has for us. So that's the place to start. And I'll just say, it is hard work being loved by God. That's probably the thing I've learned more this summer than anything else. To just sit and be loved by God is not easy. Because to be loved is vulnerable it exposes you. It strips you of all of your efficacy to just be loved unconditionally. But That's the source and the fount of joy. And that leads us to communion today. First John chapter 3, John says, See what kind of love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called the children of God. We come to the table, and this table is the love that the Father has lavished upon us, his own Son, Jesus Christ. Free, unmerited, a gift that he has given to us. Communion is a family meal. It's a family feast that celebrates the goodness and love of God. It's what Ezra was pointing the Israelites towards. He says, don't don't mourn over your conviction. He says, rejoice in the Lord and feast. Celebrate the goodness of God in your life. Receive it freely. And in that is your strength. So we're invited by the Lord into feasting on Christ. He is the one that is the source of our joy. So as we have the elements here, I invite you to reflect on what it means, not how you should have joy, not your failure to have joy, but to reflect on what it means to be loved by God. To be loved freely by God, in spite of the fact that you have no joy, in spite of the fact that you move to conviction so easily, what it means to be loved by God. Hold in your hands not the elements of conviction, but the elements of love that lead to joy. So reflect on that as I distribute the elements to our team. If you are not a believer this morning, you're not a Christian, not part of the Christian community and family, uh, then this moment is not for you. This is a, a family meal. It's an occasion for us to celebrate as a family what it means to participate in the love and the joy that God has given to us, but I invite you to reflect as well during this time of the joy that is offered to you in Jesus by God. The unmerited free gift of grace that is offered to you in His Son. Free to be had, free for the taking. Simply confess your sins, acknowledge your inadequacy, acknowledge your inability to find love and joy and meaning and life yourself, and to receive it freely as a gift from God invitation stands open to you even this morning to receive that gift.